0: I'm Zoe. And I'm Chandi. And welcome back for another episode of Bound by the Cloak. On an earlier episode, we spoke to Karen Boos about her case, the murder conviction, the arson, and the death of her daughter, Robin. So we decided to talk to somebody who knew a lot about fire science and fire investigations. So we spoke with John Lentini an expert in fire science investigations. John Lentini literally wrote the book on fire science investigations. He, No, really, he literally wrote a textbook on how to investigate fires. So this man is the expert on fire science.
1: John has personally conducted more than 2,000 fire science investigations throughout his career and is an acclaimed expert in the field. We
0: spoke to John, not just about Karen's case, but about fire investigation techniques in general. We spoke about the evolution of fire science and about how some of the techniques used in fire investigations is now known as junk science, including some of the techniques used in Karen's case. Thanks, John, for being on our show. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, um, you know, your background, how you got into fire science?
2: I got into it sort of by accident. When I graduated from college in 1973 uh, with a degree in chemistry or mainly chemistry, there weren't any jobs for chemists. The streets were full of unemployed chemists due to the Arab oil embargo. You might've read about that. The chemistry, uh, lives at the end of the fuel industry, so if there's a depression in the fuel industry, there's a depression in the chemistry industry. Now, I didn't know what to do. My dad said, "Why don't you look at forensic science?" He was a he was a cop who later became a professor of criminal justice. His dad was a cop, so I said, "Why not?" And I sent resumes out to seventy different crime laboratories, and it turns out that they were all hiring. Because back then, the, uh, the president who wanted to prove that he was not a crook, he gave lots of money to sheriff's departments and state crime labs. So every sheriff's department got a helicopter and every state crime lab doubled or tripled their staff. So there were tons of jobs. And uh, I got invited to go to a lot of places, but Atlanta was the place I could get to from where I was in Florida. And I met the, uh, the director of the crime lab and we, we had a nice chat and he liked that I came from a law enforcement family, so he hired me. And then I went to work there and they put me in the criminalistic section, which is uh, sort of a general category of everything that's not drugs and not serology and not toxicology so it was bullets and fingerprints and fire debris analysis and they tried to teach me how to do microscopic hair comparison that was the first thing they tried to teach me and after about 6 weeks i said you know what i'm i'm just not very comfortable doing this i mean i was i was a baby i was 22 and they're you know wanting me to make decisions that were going to send people to jail for life based on a hair found at a crime scene oh. and i said i'm just not yeah. I don't feel good about this. You know, 40 years later, I was vindicated when it turns out the whole discipline of microscopic hair comparison was, um, well, let's just say riddled with error. So they they said, what else? You know, let's show you the uh, arson. Maybe you'd like to do the arson. And I said, show me. And they showed me and it was classical chemistry, stuff I could understand, stuff I could explain. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. Fire marshals would bring me samples and asked me to analyze them to see if there was gasoline in somebody's living room or bedroom. And I would frequently say, no, I can't find it. And they said, well, gun, I know there's something there. And I said, well, if you knew there was something there, what'd you need me for? <laughs> I was a smart ass. And said, <laughs> they said, okay, smart ass, you come out and you show us how to find the samples. And I, I quickly learned that these guys were just, terribly overworked and they had more fires to look at than they had time to look at them. And so they weren't doing a decent job. Wow. And one thing you've got to do if you want to if you want to find out if there's gasoline on the floor is to shovel off the floor. Cause most most fire scenes, you know, the ceiling, the walls, the roof is all on the floor. And if you don't yeah. shovel it off, you're not going to know what's underneath. It was it was pretty straightforward. Uh, just a lot of hard work shoveling the floor, but that's that's how you do it. And I got into the private sector pretty quickly. And after three years, I saw that there was a demand in Atlanta for chemical analysis of fire debris in the private sector. So, fire debris analysis is one of the few forensic sciences that has a private sector component, which means there's money in it because insurance okay. companies want to investigate fires. You know, There's not a lot of money in matching bullets. Insurance companies, nobody really cares about that. So it's all done by just practice, on-the-job training. Anyways, I started going out and doing fire scenes. When I got done with a fire scene, people knew that I had been there because you could eat off it. And I mostly worked for insurance companies trying to catch people that were trying to defraud them, people that lit their own houses on fire in order to collect the insurance proceeds and uh, I did that for the better part of 15 years doing a hundred to 150 fires a year um, and then I started working on product liability cases service liability cases uh, which tended to be bigger fires there was more money in it uh, and you know you needed to be a little more knowledgeable than, than a guy just going out answering the question is this an accident or not I would have to find out what caused it and why it caused it and i had a laboratory available and did a lot of a lot of fun experiments a lot of research and i I also became involved in standardization because i i saw that that would that would help and so i started out with standardizing fire debris analysis and then got into standardizing fire scene inspection so i served on uh, astm committees uh, writing standards for fire debris analysis and NFPA committees writing standards for fire scene inspection. And um, as time went on, I started getting calls from people whose clients were accused of arson and asked to review cases. And I, I did my first exoneration case in 1994 and have had uh, 16 people released from prison as a result of cases that I I was part of the team. I didn't. Obviously, I didn't get people out of prison. The lawyers do that, but uh, I helped. And I've I've seen a lot of cases where people were falsely accused and kept them out of prison or got them to be able to collect on their insurance policy. Because unfortunately, uh, a large percentage of fire investigators have no clue what they're doing.
1: So you didn't end up becoming a cop like your dad
2: and grandpa. Oh, I worked for the cops, though. Um, And one of the one of the problems with uh, forensic science is, you know, it's a team effort, you know, between the police and the prosecutors and the scientists. And you get scientists who who lose their perspective and they think, you know, their job is to help the team get the conviction rather than help the team understand the evidence. And so we have in forensic science a number of really ugly cases uh, over the years, um, it was just yesterday. I think the state of Massachusetts, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, agreed to refund fourteen million dollars in fines because of this crooked laboratory analyst who just made stuff up. She could she could analyze drug cases at three times the rate of her colleagues uh, because she didn't bother running the tests. She just said, "Yep, I'll collect cocaine." Wow, so, is that
0: the one that there was a documentary about? I think. I was,
2: yeah, Annie thing?
0: Duke. Yeah. Was
2: yeah, there's, there's a few of those. And there are people in all of the forensic science disciplines who uh, became forensic scientists to help bring closure to the victims. Now, those okay. people chose the wrong line mm-hmm. of work. The idea is to help people understand what the evidence says. And some forensic scientists don't get that. Uh, they're not really scientists. They're cops. They should have become detectives. And then they could bring closure to the victims. But no, it, it's it's a kind of corruption, but it's not, it's not like they're making money on the deal.
0: Obviously fire science is different than a fire investigation, right? It's a, it's a science. And so what is the difference? How 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 does someone who studies fire science see fires versus someone who's just a fire
2: investigator? Well, there shouldn't be any difference. Everybody that investigates fires should be applying science to the the physical evidence. When I got into this business, people believed a lot of stuff that just wasn't true. Because nobody had actually tested it, the concept that fire burns up and out, and it leaves a V, a uh, V-shaped burn pattern, and you get to the bottom of the V, that's where the fire started. Well, that's that's wow, pretty good. Yeah, if you put the fire out before it becomes fully involved, it, yeah. fine. But once the fire becomes fully involved, the rules change. And nobody knew that. And back when fire investigation was getting started in the 50s and 60s, uh, the phenomenon of flashover was was rare. And people really didn't know much about it. And, and this is because back then, the the fuels that were involved, uh, the furniture, for example, was made out of wood, and cotton, and wool, and not made out of polyurethane foam, which is like solid gasoline. And so when you light a couch on fire and it's made out of wood and cotton and wool, it might take 30 minutes to burn that couch. It might Never bring the room to flashover. Whereas if you light a, a sofa on fire that's got polyurethane cushions and uh, Dacron fiber fill in the back, it'll bring the room to flash over in under five minutes. And
0: there's like material testing now for the level of material
2: that's used in, in product. Polyurethane foam, you know, it's got the air already mixed in. Uh, it's got this this highly flammable fuel and it releases a ton of heat. And so people in the early 90s, in the early 90s, they began to look at the phenomenon of flashover. And flashover, it turns out, can burn the heck out of the floor, even though there's no flammable liquid on the floor. It used to be that if there's flammable liquid on the floor, or if the floor is burned, people say, oh, low burning. There must have been a flammable liquid to help it burn. This fire that I ran in 1991 burned the heck out of the floor without a drop of accelerant. So I began to preach the gospel of flashover and people hated my guts for it. I was a pariah way outside of the mainstream for 10 or 15 years. And then the mainstream shifted. I haven't changed a bit, but the, the mainstream <laughs> had and now I'm in it.
1: Speaking of flashover, for somebody who doesn't know anything or many things about fire, what exactly is flashover?
2: It's when you make the transition from a fire in a room to a room on fire. And what happens when you light a piece of furniture on fire is what you would expect to happen. The fire burns up and out, makes a nice V pattern. Except for one thing, there's a ceiling in the room. And so the hot gases released by that fire pile up at the ceiling. And the fire continues to make that layer of hot gases thicker and hotter. And that gas layer then radiates heat in all directions, including downward. And when you get to about 1,200 degrees Fahrenheit at the ceiling, there's enough radiation coming off of that hot gas layer to light everything in a room on fire. And it's, it's, it's pretty impressive if you're, if you're up close to it, pretty scary. And this is, there's a reason that firemen don't run right into a building uh, until they size the thing up they could end up being cooked.
0: So then that makes it really hard to find the origin of the fire. Once flashover has occurred, I would assume it, like you, it's, it's it hard does. to pinpoint. Yeah.
2: The longer the, the room is fully involved, the longer period of time after flashover, the harder it is to find the origin uh, to where if it's burned for more than three minutes beyond flashover or three minutes in a fully involved condition, There is no science that says that fire investigators are capable of determining the origin any more than saying, well, it started in this room. We know it started in this room, but we can't tell where. And that's because when flashover occurs, the fire uses up all the oxygen in the room. And you need to have oxygen in order to have a fire burning. And so after flashover, the only places where there's any flame or places that are ventilated, like windows and doors. So you get burning there. And not only do you get burning there, you've got the hot gases and the smoke exiting the room at the top because they're lighter. So they're they're up, up they're up at the ceiling. So they go out the top of the door or the window. And then you're creating a vacuum by doing that. And so cool air comes in the bottom of the door or the window. And so the only place that can actually burn is down low. And you get these these patterns of very intense damage caused by very intense burning that have nothing to do with where the fire started or where the fire burned the longest. So you've you've got to separate intensity from duration. And, you know, it used to be that the lowest and deepest charring was the origin of the fire. That's just not true. In fact, the lowest and deepest burning is where the fire burnt the best, would burn most intensely. Now, before flashover, you can you can look at the lowest and deepest char. but after flashover, you can't. And that means you have to examine every potential ignition source in the room. And if you don't do that, you can't prove where the fire started.
1: That seems incredibly difficult.
2: It is incredibly difficult, but people make it out, like when they testifying before a jury, they talk about fire burns up and out. And so all I got to do is look for the lowest and deepest char and a jury goes, yeah, yeah, and they believe it. Because why not? This guy's an expert.
0: Right. So you've talked about NFPA. In terms of people accepting NFPA standards for fire investigation, why do you think it took so long? A
2: couple of reasons. Number one, NFPA 921, which was the the document that says you got to use science is scared people. They weren't scientists. Most most of the people that become firemen didn't even go to college. They want to become firemen. They didn't want to right. go to college. But then um, after they you know have been fighting fires for a number of years, they say, "Oh, I want to be a fire investigator." And and then the person that taught them didn't go to college. Didn't study science. So there, there's a they they felt uh, job insecurity well, if you got to be a scientist to do fire investigation, I don't have a job anymore. That was number one. Uh, number two, denial. If you send somebody to prison that doesn't belong there, you know, you feel terrible about that. Anybody would. Or if you cause a family to lose their life savings because the insurance company said, no, we're not paying you, you were wrong about that. You'd feel terrible about it. So it's it's easier to just say, oh, these guys, these, these fire scientists, they don't know what they're doing. And so uh, it was 1992 when the first really hard standard, NFPA 921 was published. And it caused the the heads of most of the fire investigation community to explode. They just couldn't stand it. And in the second edition and the third edition, people still hated the idea that people who knew about science were going to tell them how to do their job. And so it, it took a while before the arson investigation community finally accepted that you had to do good science in order to do this job right so it's only been this century uh right around 2000 2001 that you could say that fire investigation was generally accepted to be a scientific endeavor i mean i've got testimony of people in the 90s they say i'm not a scientist and they're proud of it yeah
0: that seems so odd to me that somebody yeah, that's kind of strange. I mean, I would think that somebody who investigates fires should have like a considerable amount of knowledge about fire science. But
2: yeah, I mean, you would think yeah. so. But about half of the people these days, if you ask them to define the basic units of energy or the basic units of power or explain the difference between energy and power, they can't do it, and they're. they're Wholly unqualified, you know we're we're asking these people to make sophisticated decisions about chemistry and physics, and these people haven't studied chemistry or physics since they were in high school, and they've forgotten it. Wow,
1: is that a law enforcement thing you think in that experience is more valued over education?
2: Absolutely. comes from the, the mindset that you know I know bad guys, I've caught bad guys. I know how to catch right. bad guys. don't don't be don't be confusing me with no science.
0: Yeah, I mean, we've had this conversation before with other guests previously, you know, I mean, even talking about the Innocence Project and wrongful convictions. And to talk about the fact that people are wrongly convicted of of arson is it's terrible and I, I mean, I don't know how common it is. I mean, even when it comes to proving arson for insurance purposes, how common is it that someone is accused of arson and the evidence is is inaccurate or wrong?
2: There's not been a lot of studies on that. Um, I can only tell you about my experience. And I have met 70 or so people who were falsely accused of setting fires. Uh, Some of them went to prison. Some of them got their insurance claims denied. Uh, Some of them, you know, I was able to prove, look, this is an accident. This is not arson. Uh, Go ahead and pay these people. I've been able to persuade some prosecutors not to bring cases to trial. Recently had a case out of South Carolina where just after a year, the prosecutor agreed that if he brought it to trial, he would probably lose. And that is, you know, it's a prosecutor's ethical duty to not bring cases that he's going to lose. So if he knows he's going to lose the case, his obligation, his ethical obligation is to dismiss the charges. The National Registry of Exonerations at University of Michigan, they have north of 100 people that were Wrongly convicted of arson so it, it's it's not real common. on the other hand, if you're one of the people that gets wrongly convicted, you know, you don't care that it's rare. People tend to seek me out now because of you know my publications and my, my work with, with various committees and doing interviews like this. somebody who's got an innocent client will will call me up. Of course people with guilty clients call me up all the time too and I, you know I just tell them get the best deal you can. But you know, it's it's my job to help the lawyers figure out if they want to fight it or if they want to if they want to take a plea deal.
1: In terms of people who are wrongly convicted of arson, what are these investigators getting wrong that it keeps happening year after year?
2: Well, they they think that they are better at finding the origin than they really are. They read patterns caused by ventilation and say that's a pattern caused by long duration. They're not getting reviewed enough.
0: When it comes to detecting arson, are there other things that are, is there other evidence that's present besides just looking for an origin?
2: Sure. Sure. I and mean, you know, if somebody sets up an incendiary device, it's not going to go away. You you might find evidence of that. You know, you got a a ring camera on somebody on the neighbor across the street. Uh, and and they catch you uh, leaving the house with a, an empty gas can. That's a clue.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, you know, people people confess to it all the time. You know, they they brag about it. People it's find a out. Thing to brag about. <laughs> it, well, it is. But criminals are stupid. I, yes. <laughs> you know, one hundred is the average IQ of the population. But you go to the prison, uh, you're not going to be anywhere close to hundred for the average IQ. Wow. People brag about how they took their insurance company for a hundred thousand dollars. You know, other well, things people do. An accidental fire is by definition something that nobody knows about. If you can demonstrate that somebody had prior knowledge that th- this fire was gonna happen, you're you're most of the way there to, to showing that they did it. You know, as people, I used to catch people like taking out their family photographs and the family Bible and mementos they would put them in a storage facility and, you know, you find out that they've got a storage facility. You go there and you find all this stuff in there. And then you look at their inventory that they hand to the insurance company and that same stuff is there. Oh, wow. Uh, That's a clue.
0: (laughs) That would definitely be a clue. Yeah.
2: I once, I once found uh in the garage of, of a, of a house. It was a Big house with a separate garage. And I went in the garage and I found the bride and groom from the wedding cake and a children's baby teeth and a family Bible. I said, gee, what are these things doing here? And, you know, you ask them, you say, well, did, did you take anything out of the house recently? And they said, oh, no. I had another guy who uh, he claimed six television sets on his inventory back in the day when televisions were more expensive. And he was even able to produce receipts for when he bought them. And the receipts, it turns out, were all forgeries. And I was able to go into the, the house and find the tubes, the vacuum tubes that ran the TVs and you know, they don't they don't use vacuum tubes yeah. anymore. They haven't since the mid-sixties or 70s. And this guy's got old TVs in the house, and he's saying they're new TVs. So even if even if you couldn't prove what caused the fire, and we couldn't, the house was burnt to powder, but we were able to show that this guy's lying about the TVs. And that that's enough to void his insurance claim right there. I mean, the insurance company doesn't have to prove you lit the house on fire if they can prove you're lying about your stuff. So You know, there there are a number of different things you can do, even if the house does burn to powder. I had one one clever dude took mattresses and stacked them up against the windows in order to keep the fire from being detected. Nobody could see that there was a fire burning in that house until it was too late. But when I got there, this is a brick house, and there's these mattresses hanging out the window. And I, you know, I could tell it, you know, a fire won't do that. Somebody had to, somebody had to put that mattress there. He really didn't think about it too deeply at all. No. And there's some people, you know, they, they try and, and fool the fire investigator. I had one guy took the dining room table out and put plates and silverware on the floor so it would look like the dining room table had just burned up, leaving the plates and silverware behind. Unfortunately for him, that didn't burn that well. <laughs> so I, I found the plates and silverware, you know, unburned and no table.
1: Wait, why wouldn't he? Plates wouldn't burn.
2: Well, plates won't burn. They're they're ceramic. Silver won't burn, but the wooden table would. So if the house had burnt to powder, I would have found the plates and the silverware not thought much about the fact that the table was gone uh, simply because it burned up.
1: I guess it's more common than I thought, it, it, you know, people burning up their houses for insurance money. I mean,
2: it comes and goes. It was a really big problem in the 70s and 80s. These days, burning your house, just it, it's easier to sell your house than it is to burn it. <laughs> I mean, you know the, the blessing of that is you don't have to go to prison.
1: Yeah, listeners, just just sell it. <laughs> don't burn it.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. There's some people still do that. These these tend to be the, the low value houses. You know, if you get if you got a really nice house, yeah, don't um, burn that. <laughs> people don't burn them. Once in a while, you'll you There's an exception to everything. But the 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 arson fires that I worked on were they were mostly cheap houses but it might be because I was working mainly in the Southeast, Not a lot of PO folks in the South.
0: So you said fire investigating is a team effort, or just even just the investigation as a whole, like beyond just the fact that there's a fire. How many different types of people would be working on that team besides law enforcement and a fire investigator? Would they hire a fire science expert to assist, or would they just solely investigate it themselves?
2: Well, in order to do the chemical analysis, you need to get a chemist involved. You need to get people to that are skilled at interviewing in order to interview the eyewitnesses to the fire, in order to interview the the firemen. Uh, you have to learn what people saw, or at least what they think they saw. Um, and, you know, you've got to have lawyers, uh, prosecutors, you got to have defense, a law, defense attorneys. I, I know a lot of defense attorneys, and most of them don't want bad guys on the street. You know, they have wives and children, and they don't want bad guys on the street any more than the prosecutor does. But in order to send somebody to prison, you have to give them a, a fair trial or at least give them effective assistance of counsel so they know when when to plead guilty or, you know, when, when to go to trial. So the, the whole criminal justice system and the civil justice system, uh, you know, requires lawyers. But this, the, the average lawyer that I work with is going to get one or two arson cases in, it, in his career. So they're not very knowledgeable, so they need somebody to to advise them. And and these days they they get it mostly. Judges sometimes are reluctant to provide a defendant with uh, funds to hire an expert, but mostly the judges realize that this is this is complicated stuff, and you can't expect a lawyer to uh, to understand it without without some expert help. Uh, lawyers don't get science if they got science they would have become doctors you know people who go to law school generally are not trained in science and so they they need to learn a language and it's it's two different systems the uh, justice system and and science and you know the job of forensic scientists including fire investigators is to bring that science in, into the case in a way that helps people understand
1: so do you get a lot of flack or pushback
2: in your line of work? I used to. I used to get a ton of it. Uh, nowadays, people invite me to come speak at their seminars. I, I speak regularly at the ATF Training Academy in Huntsville, Alabama, where I tell them what's going to happen to them if they screw up, you know, when what kind of things I will be looking for in their cases. And they appreciate that. You know, I've been trying, you know, throughout my career to to educate my colleagues in how to correctly investigate a fire and how to get the right answer. Nobody wants to find the wrong answer. But a lot of times, especially if you have children die, somebody's got to pay. People want to bring closure to the victims. Sometimes children die in in accidental fires, and and there's nothing you can do about that.
1: Now, speaking of children dying i mean that was the case of karen bose that is that you know that you wrote a report on and that that you know that's an ongoing case and what's interesting about that is you know that's happened over decades so in terms of fire signs evolving over time so you've been doing this for what almost 50 years a while yeah yeah So what's been constant and what has changed the
2: most? What's what's been constant is the notion that low burning is unusual. And so when people see low burning, they say, "Ah, fire must have had help. Um, What's been constant is that people don't understand the role of ventilation. Uh, For a lot of years, I and my colleagues uh, tried to help people understand the role of radiation. Which is it's the main uh, mode of heat transfer once a fire becomes fully involved. When when it's, when a fire starts out, uh, what you have is convection. That is a light the the hot air is lighter than the cool air, and so the, the heat rises. Everybody gets heat rises, and for many many years that was what fire investigators told juries: heat rises, and this floor is burnt, so uh, something suspicious happened here. I think we have gotten that across to the vast majority of fire investigators, that radiation is more important than convection in terms of what causes the damage. Uh, What we're still struggling with and still trying to understand is the role of ventilation. Uh, You need uh, heat, you need fuel, and you need oxygen in order to have fire. And it turns out that fire uses all the oxygen in the room when it's given a chance. And there's a lot of people just don't quite understand that yet. Just as recently as last year, I looked at a fire scene that had been, it was more than a year old. And the insurance company had said, we're not going to pay you because you set this fire. And I said, well, how did they determine that? And they said, well, we know where the fire started and there's nothing there that's accidental. And therefore it must've been set. It's a combination of both not understanding the role of ventilation and using a kind of thinking called negative corpus. Somebody's murdered when they don't have a body. It's hard to prove that they've been murdered. It can be done. It happens once in a while. But in this particular scene, there was a floor to ceiling window that had broken open during the fire. And of course, there was heavy burning right next to that window. And this investigator went in and just declared that that's where the fire started. And he was wrong. He didn't process the room. I ended up spending six hours shoveling that room out. And I, I wow. try to make the point of not doing that anymore. I've done it more than 2,000 <laughs> times. Jeez. And I'm old. And My body is just not up to yeah. shoveling for six hours. But that's what I ended up doing. And in doing that, I found several potential ignition sources that the, the first investigator didn't even know were there. They also found six cans of spray paint that had exploded, and that would make the fire pretty intense. But it it turns out they didn't have any chemistry. They just went on this this theory of negative corpus. And it's only been 12 years since the NFPA standard said, hey, don't use negative corpus. And that that was in 2011. And a lot of people's heads exploded again. They said, wait a minute, how am I ever going to get a conviction if I can't use negative corpus? Well, you got You need better evidence. That's what you need. So there's, there's, there's still a lot of negative corpus going on and still a lot of not understanding the role of oxygen. Uh, what's changed is that we are getting better. Uh, there, there's a lot more fires that are called undetermined these days uh, when a fire investigator realizes I, I can't prove what happened here. And a, a lot of fire investigators are becoming more cautious. And a lot of the old school has retired, which is, uh, is how things advance. The uh, Max Planck, who was one of the, the great scientists of the 20th century, he said, science advances one funeral at a time. It's not that people figure out that there's a problem with the way they're doing things. It's just that they retire. So I say fire investigation advances one retirement at a time.
0: Yeah, I mean, like I've glanced at some of your your reports um, over the years and looking at debris analysis. And I mean, I think it's interesting that, you know, especially with like wood burning, when you... Burn wood, like you it burns whichever way it kind of wants to. I don't but when you actually analyze it, I guess back in the day, it was, well, if it you know has a certain type of burning pattern, this means that this could be the origin or it burns longer here. and 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 so in terms of materials, like you said, like you know over time, right? older I guess older materials burn a certain way, you know, and new materials are maybe quicker to engulf in flames um, and and burn quicker. And it seems like when you analyze like a particular scene of fire scene, people don't really delve into that, that information. They just kind of look at the room and, and just, you know, say, okay, well, I think it started there. Why don't people take the time to really sort of dig in and, and find the source? So they're, they're just solely looking for a conviction. They're they are only looking for, okay, somebody probably caused this fire and this is the origin. I'm going to go with that. Why is it that it's just sort of, it ends at that moment and doesn't go any further?
2: Well, laziness has a lot to do with it. Um, it, it this is not easy work. It's a lot of heavy lifting outdoors uh, with no air conditioning, no roof usually. So if it's going to rain that day, well, you work in the rain. Um, it, everything about fire investigation is, is difficult. Uh, and after you get done with the, the physical exertion of clearing that fire scene, then you need to engage your brain and think about it. And so, you know, that's hard too. It, it's, it's, a, it's a complex chemical reaction. And if you don't know chemistry, you don't know physics, probably not going to get it right.
1: You say everything about fire investigation is difficult. So why do you still do it after all these years?
2: Because so I'm good at it. <laughs> That's a really good answer. Yeah, That's the only way I know how to make a living. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but we have, we have made a lot of progress in, in getting people to accept the fact that they need to know uh, something about chemistry and physics in order to Do this job right, and there's there's two ways to do that. One is is to teach people through the standardization process, uh, writing standards for what you need to know. Uh, The hard way is to beat them up in court, uh, get them disqualified as experts, make them feel terrible about themselves. I'd I'd rather do it through teaching. Yeah, but you know, when push comes to shove, uh, you you go to court. And, you know, you hope that you can persuade um, the trier of fact, whether that's the judge or the jury, that this person has said, oh, this is an arson fire, doesn't know what they're talking about.
0: So do you think that over time, eventually we'll get to a point where you have to have a certain level of expertise to be a fire investigator or for- forensic investigator in terms of crimes
2: fires? Over time, things will improve uh, and have improved tremendously, but right now, despite the efforts of a number of people, uh, there's a standard called NFPA 1033, and it sets forth the job requirements for fire investigators, and it says you got to have a high school education. Then it goes on to say you've got to know a lot of things, and, and none of those things are taught in high school. But It still says high school education. And this is as recently as 2022. It's Uh, kind of
0: scary because you need to know.
2: Most of the people in the business don't own a science degree, much less, you know, and only half of the people own some kind of college education. Uh, And that's, you know, usually in criminal justice or English or something else uh, that's not science. That's just how it is, and so those are the people in charge. Those are the, everybody gets represented on these standardization committees. You get representatives from the public sector, the private sector, insurance, education, enforcement, and it has to be a a, a balance of interests in order to promulgate a standard. So if you don't have that balance, uh, you can't have the consensus. And when you have that balance, you get people with no college educations on the committee. And they say, I don't think we need to require a college education. I would have to fire half my staff if we required a college education. So no, I'm not going to go along with that. And it doesn't happen. But gradually, people are getting the message You know that if, you don't, if you're not able to explain uh, the combustion of hydrogen, you don't get to testify. A, a judge actually said that. It was a fire marshal. I was asked about the combustion of hydrogen. And it was like a deer in the headlights. And the judge, without any prompting, without any objections, he just piped up and he said, I'm sorry, if you don't know H2O, you will not be rendering opinion testimony in my courtroom. And every yeah. time the fire marshal got close to an opinion, the judge would say, that sounds like an opinion. I told you, you don't get to express opinions. So
0: that's really that, scary. It was a
2: painful lesson for that person though. Yeah. I mean, they could have just learned how, how combustion works. So you know, these days we tell people you you've got to understand stoichiometry, which is how to balance a chemical equation. And for years, I had people saying, "John, you, we don't need to know how to balance a chemical equation in order to do fire investigation." And uh, I said, "Well, I, I really think you do, so that you can understand what you're doing here." But the deep down fundamental science is something that a lot of people don't have don't want to understand
0: i mean that's really scary because then that can result in wrongful convictions of people who have not started fires for criminal purposes right and so i mean there are a lot of people who are probably still in prison for these crimes Um, oh yeah like we said karen Bowes' case
2: is this kind of an outlier Um, okay a more a more typical case would be that of claude garrett tennessee who was just Last month released from prison after 30 years for lighting a fire that he didn't light. The uh, Bose case, there were two very knowledgeable fire investigators who declared that it was not a suicide, it was a homicide, but mm-hmm. their reasoning was wrong. Okay. Um, and one of them, I know was just a team player. If the prosecutor wanted the fire to be an arson, then by God, that, that would be his result. The other guy, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for. And he's been, he's been known to say this is a bad science determination, but I don't. I don't quite understand their reasoning. You know, they said a fire started in the hallway uh, when the daughter is found in a bedroom and there's a gas can in a bedroom and there's gasoline all over the bedroom. No gasoline in the hallway. Um, but they said it started in the hallway. And somehow... Well, that
0: doesn't make uh, sense.
2: No, yeah. it doesn't. But that's... You had these two well-credentialed, nice-looking, articulate experts that said the fire started in the hallway. So Karen Bowes is, is in prison.
0: Can things be sort of misidentified as gasoline in in a fire investigation? like any other accelerant could just, I mean, you know after everything is burned, or is it literally evidence of the fact that like chemical evidence that it's gasoline, like they did the testing and they determined that?
2: The fire debris analysis, the chemistry is used to identify gasoline, is pretty well settled. Um, there are only a few places where you can go and people will find gasoline that's not there. okay uh, and and they brag about, oh, we, we have a 50% positive rate. And a third of our findings are gasoline. I don't know why they, they do that. But there's one particular laboratory in Florida that I just don't trust their results. If they say something gasoline, I want to look at the data. And there have been like five different cases that I've looked at where it wasn't really gasoline. It looked a little like gasoline, but not not really. But mostly, mostly people doing the fire debris analysis, they are scientists. Okay. They're, they're doing a chemical analysis with gas chromatography, mass spectrometry, fancy highfalutin science that, you know, the average fire investigator wouldn't know anything about. So when the lab tells you that you got something or you don't have something, they, they just have to believe it. I would say that, you know, in, because of standardization that has been going on in the fire debris analysis field for 40 years now, it's it's pretty trustworthy. It's not completely trustworthy. It's still pattern recognition. It's still doing feature comparison, which is what's wrong with a lot of forensic science. But it's it's pretty reliable, uh, as opposed to the guy that goes to a fully involved fire scene and comes away saying it's arson without finding gasoline in the bedroom. I mean, if you find gasoline in, in somebody's bedroom, uh, there's somebody's got some explaining to do.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Are there other um, accelerants besides gasoline that are used in arson?
2: Yeah, there are. Uh, people use paint thinner. They use charcoal okay. lighter. They'll use kerosene. But wow. gasoline is cheap. You can buy a lot yeah. of it. I mean, even, even at five bucks a gallon, it's a whole lot cheaper than, than mineral spirits or charcoal lighter fluid. That's true. Yep. Easily available. And it works really well, just that it does leave residue behind if, if the thing doesn't go to powder you know Some somebody's going to find it or maybe a dog will find it there's a lot of uh oh, yeah yeah there's lot of, a lot of very well-trained uh canines yeah. but you know they're willing to go sniff the whole scene <laughs> I, I used to sniff fire scenes all the time you'd see me on my hands and knees sniffing sniffing <laughs> a spot
1: you but, have a picture of that
2: but i'm not but i'm not doing the whole fire scene the thing about a dog is he he's willing to do that and, and they are very good at finding samples that have a higher likelihood of testing positive than, than humans are. But, you know, there, there are people that, you know, if a dog alerts, they they say, well, there must be accelerant here. Uh, there's another step that goes beyond that. The dog tells you where to take the sample and then you send it to the laboratory. And if the laboratory confirms that there's something there, then, then you got something. But there's, there's people that... You know, as you say, well, it depends on the dog. No, it doesn't. If the dog says it's there, that means you send it to the lab. It doesn't mean you call it accelerant.
0: So has that happened in court where people are saying, okay, but the dog alerted. So there has to be something like that's happened in court.
2: Oh yeah. Lots of times. Although these days we usually are successful in getting that kind of evidence excluded. Right. But back in 1994, Uh, There was a guy in Atlanta, had a dog alert 12 times in his home. And the dog handler said, wow, 12, 12 hits. They took 12 samples and sent them to the Georgia Crime Laboratory. And the laboratory said, there's nothing there. Sorry. And then the prosecutor went to the crime laboratory and took custody of the samples herself and took them to a private laboratory. Of course. And the private laboratory said, nope, there's nothing there. And this prosecutor still insisted on introducing this evidence. That prosecutor was named Nancy Grace. It was her last <laughs> conviction.
0: <laughs> that does not surprise me at all. That's <laughs> uh, Well,
2: I helped to get it overturned. And when I'm talking to audiences of uh, defense lawyers, I, I say, I got Nancy Grace's last conviction overturned. It usually <laughs> results in spontaneous applause. Yeah. But it if it doesn't, <laughs> if it doesn't, I will insist on it. <laughs> <laughs> that's wild. Wow. Yeah, she was a terrible, terrible prosecutor.
1: I mean, that's the interesting thing about you, I think, as a person, is, and also probably why you've been doing this for so many years and still doing it because you are not afraid to tell the truth I mean I would imagine a lot of people in your field or in your position would leave because of the threats
2: well I like it it's fun it's you know there's a lot of people will say yeah he's not telling the truth he's he's lying he's, he's doing doing it for money to to get this guilty guy off I don't want guilty guys on the street um, and, and I tell defense lawyers, who are my major source of, of consulting work these days, you know, three out of four times when I look at a case that doesn't pass their smell test, I say, well, it passes mine. This looks like an arson fire. You know, and the, then the lawyer knows that they've got to deal with it. And defense lawyers know that 90% of their clients are guilty, even the ones that say they're innocent. You know, well, the, the thing is, I get a lot of cases that don't pass a lawyer's smell test. So, so the the universe of cases that I look at is is sort of limited. You know, if it's a really obvious case, you know, they see the guy running away from the scene with a gas can. They, they usually don't go to the trouble to hire an expert on cases like that.
1: I want to talk about this case that happened in the mid nineties in Philadelphia. So it was Christmas Eve, and a fire had broken out, and the mother had insisted that her infant or I think it was a newborn was kidnapped, but the investigators said that, no, she was incinerated and they, and that's why you don't have any remains and fast forward a few years, she actually found the child alive. She was kidnapped by a family member. So what do you say to that?
2: I think that's a, perfect example of fire investigators who didn't know what they were doing i could say a lot worse about that but that doesn't happen and these fire investigators believed that it did they had no basis for believing that you just don't incinerate a, a whole body to where there's nothing left there's going to be bones left there's this bones left after people are cremated you know that you don't turn to ashes right there in the in the crematorium they got to crush them. They got to crush the bones afterwards. So these guys, they're just stupid. Okay, <laughs> there's no That's other true, way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They're just stupid. Uh, and and why somebody didn't call them out on it right away is is you know it's a puzzlement. But uh, Philadelphia is kind of special. They There's just a, a lot of old timey guys with old timey notions that were doing fire investigation in Philadelphia in the 90s. Hell, Frank Rizzo was the police chief and then the mayor. It was just, it was just a a culture of stupid, right wing stupid, but stupid. And that's that's who got promoted, you know, the guy that got the most convictions. It uh, it's just it taxes the imagination that somebody could think that a baby had just turned to vapor. And and yeah. nobody called them out on it. You know, that's that's the thing that is amazing. You know, you can have a guy that's stupid, but he's supposed to have a boss who who's smarter than he is.
0: I mean, it's just kind of like I, you know, me not having any, you know, real knowledge of like fire science. Right. Because I'm not a scientist. Even I would just like that. That's absurd to think that. Yeah, there would be nothing left. It's crazy. It is absurd. And I guess
1: I it's mean, also yeah. part of the culture of uh, law enforcement, which hopefully has changed over the decades that slowly. Yeah. um, (laughs) Yeah, definitely not as much as you would like, but to push back and not brotherhood or culture.
2: Yeah, it it is part of the culture wars. Um, I think that, you know, things began to change right around the early 90s um, with Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld founding the Innocence Project. And the number of convictions that have been overturned finally got people's attention, and it, it took a long time. And, and there's still people that hate the Innocence Project. They call it a cottage industry, the innocence, the innocence industry. You know, I, I work for the Innocence Project, and you know, frequently tell them, "Don't take this case. This really, this is a good, a righteous conviction here." But you know, other times I, I see the cases that they've looked at, and it is. Um, Cultural thing that uh, the law enforcement, you know, they just circle the wagons. If somebody challenges them, uh, then that person's a whore or a liar or, you know, some, some kind of evil lefty. Just not true. But, you know, the Innocence Project has exposed the, the faults in forensic science and, you know, much to our benefit. Uh, people are more careful these days, but they, they still catch a lot of grief. But mostly, mostly they're heroes. Of course, then you have the OJ trial, where uh, Sheck and Newfeld represented OJ, who clearly did it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Sorry. Yes.
2: You <laughs> no, 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 what, what I tell what I tell people that are disappointed if an arsonist gets away with it. I say, yeah, uh, they will screw up again. They always do. Look at OJ. <laughs> and he did. One. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking
1: of that in the media, right, in crime TV shows, they present a certain view of arsonists in that there is a typical profile. Is that true?
2: No. Profiling is garbage science. It's, it's garbage dressed up as science. If you remember the the Washington sniper, Washington, D.C. sniper, yep. middle-aged white guy. Yeah, right. <laughs> they couldn't have been more wrong about that. They They get it is fine to use as an investigative tool, but it frequently doesn't work out.
1: If I ask, you know, what causes people to commit arson, you'll have many different reasons for that.
2: Yeah. You see, what causes people to commit crimes in general? Sex and alcohol.
1: Really? That's it?
2: <laughs> that, that'll take care of most of them. I can see that. Uh, you know, arson for profit is, is not the most common. Uh, usually people get mad. And they get mad when they done drugs or alcohol you know, or catch the wife cheating on them or catch the husband cheating on them. Um, so they get anger is, you know, it's a leading cause of crime. I think.
0: That's interesting. Like when I think of like, you know, arson and fires, I, I tend to think of like, Oh, somebody, you know, insurance money or something, but yeah, if it's really more so anger and, and uh, some, somebody just being drunk and
2: doing something stupid, then. Uh, Insurance fraud surely does happen um, and you know a lot of times though it's not it's not the arson that's the fraud it's the inflating the inventory you know people figure right, the that insurance company is going to screw them anyway so they're going to screw the insurance company back by inflating the value of their contents it it, it happens it, it really does but it's it's not nearly as common as as people think
1: So you've been doing this for a while and what is your hope for the field of fire science 10 years from now,
2: 20 years from now? Those are two different questions. 10 years from now, I hope people follow the standards and are cautious and understand better how fire behaves and that they are a little more conscientious about investigating a particular room. Uh, You know, a lot of times that's the best you can do is narrow it down to a particular room that caught fire. And if people understand that, then they will look more carefully at the contents of that room, and you know maybe find something that malfunctioned or something that was find a, find the gasoline in the living room, and 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 they will stop using negative corpus. That's the main thing. Is they say, well, I'm such a good investigator that if there was an accidental cause of this fire, I would surely find it, and because I don't find it, it's must be an arson. You know, in twenty years, uh, we can hope that it will be a requirement that you actually have a science degree to do this kind of work. You know that you understand the science, and that it, it, it's been happening with the standards. I and mean, we we recently, you know, updated NFPA 1033, and we had a list of sixteen subjects that fire investigators were required to know, but we didn't define those those terms, those sixteen terms. We reorganized the list. And defined the terms, and by the time we were done defining the terms, there's like 125 things you've got to know. And a lot of it's simple stuff. I mean, like knowing about uh, gas systems and heating systems and electrical systems and building systems in general, um, it would seem that, yeah, you got to know that stuff. How could you think you you could get by without knowing that stuff? But also, you know, fire science, uh, the chemistry and the physics. Fire dynamics. We've explained all of those things in in great detail, and so now people, if they want to demonstrate that they are competent fire investigators, they really need to be able to talk about all 125 things. You know, some of them some of them are remarkably simple, and some of them are pretty complex.
1: What keeps you up at night, John?
2: Nothing. I sleep like a baby. <laughs> And I know babies don't sleep, but but uh, I really, with respect to with respect to fires, nothing really keeps me up at night. I do the best I can, uh, try and move forward. You know, the things that keep me up at night are things that you see on the nightly news. I have a question about
0: your book. Can you tell us a little bit about your book and and how that relates to fire
2: science? Well, the beginning of it is is all about that the, I make a, I make the case that you gotta you gotta have science to do fires and talk about the history of the study of fire since the Enlightenment since Lavoisier and then I get into the the nuts and bolts of of molecules and how they how they interact with each other and with with fire um, and then I get into fire dynamics uh, those first three chapters of the book tell you pretty much what you need to know about fire science. I mean, if if you understand that, uh, nobody will say that you're not qualified because you don't know stuff. Uh, And you will know more than the lawyer that's asking you the questions that's challenging your qualifications. And That's that's as far as you need to get. Yeah, I talk about procedures. I talk about how the lab works, which is really not completely accessible to the average fire investigator, but it, it is accessible to someone that has an undergraduate understanding of organic chemistry. Uh, Then I talk about different types of ignition sources, and then I do different types of fires that I've investigated. I had lots of pictures. And I talk about the myths that people have been raised on that that are hopefully disappearing. And there's a lot of them I I just don't see anymore because we've been pounding it into people's heads for 30 years that this is a myth. And then I talk about some cases, uh, war stories, and then i talk about quality assurance and how how to do a good professional job i, I used to give lectures with powerpoint slides um, and i did that throughout the 90s when people would invite me and of course back then there was a lot of people that said oh, don't invite john he's he's a bad guy but sometime in the, around 2002 uh, i realized that i had enough material to put together and write a book, which I did. It took me quite a while. It was 2004 when I submitted the manuscript. I think it wasn't published until 2006. And then I updated it twice. So the third edition was just in uh, 2018. It, it explains how to do the job. And it's the first fire investigation book in full color. My, my publisher initially said, well, we'll give you eight pages of color plates in the middle. That's the way a lot of textbooks work. You know, textbooks are not cheap to produce. And so when I got got the manuscript done, the publisher said, OK, you need to pick out the pictures you want in color. I said, you know what? That's cheesy. Just do it all in black and white. And the publisher said, do you think people would pay an extra 20% for color? And I said, absolutely. And it was the first fire investigation textbook in full color. Now, all the fire investigation textbooks are in full color. But I I do take a a certain amount of pride in that. I got that done.
0: I mean, that's important because how else are you really going to see it? If it's in black and white, you're not.
2: Uh, Yeah. yeah. Fire scenes are pretty much black and white. uh, And, you know, without the color, there's not a lot you can tell. Yeah. uh, Except for the really obvious stuff.
1: Scientific protocols for fire investigation.
2: Third edition.
0: And that's used in terms of fire investigating or fire science or both for, for educational purposes?
2: Yeah, I use it. I use it as a training document. Okay, uh, and a lot of people use it as uh, a book to train people. People that are studying fire investigation. There's not a lot of people studying it, but those that are. Yeah, we need more. <laughs> yeah,
1: we need more people like you, John. Uh huh. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that was a very. I'm, uh, I'm pretty
2: close to retiring.
1: <laughs> yeah, so you need a a prototype. Yeah,
0: we need a. You know, for for every one of you, we need like twenty more people.
2: Well, there's there's, <laughs> so. pe- there's people coming along that uh, that get it. People, you know, their their entire lives, and they, they never learned the myths. Uh, and NFPA nine twenty one has been a part of their profession since they got into it. It wasn't something they that was new that they had to accept or change. You know, it's just the way it is. So there's 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 people coming along.
0: Honestly, my you know, knowledge of NFPA just goes, you know, the basics of fire suppression and things like that. So sprinklers and, and you know, construction wise, but yeah, it's, you don't even think about the fact that there's a lot more to it than just that, you know, like there's so much. I didn't even realize that there's like fire investigation uh, standards, like for, you know, for NFPA, I didn't even think about it because it's not in, you know, my realm at all.
2: Well, they've only been in it uh, since 1985.
0: So, yeah how how old well, is NFPA new.
2: then? I think they're more than 100 years old. Really? Wow. Uh, oh yeah. Okay. They they wow. started out calling themselves the National Fire Prevention Association, and then they realized they would look like failures. <laughs> <laughs> they call it National Fire Protection Association. Yeah. And most of the changes in NFPA standards have come about as a result of tragedies. You know, standards yeah. are written in blood. Yeah, this.
0: a lot of uh, terrible incidents. Triangle yep. shirtwaist factory fire, and all other kinds of incidents that have happened. Parkland
2: Circus fire. Yeah, there've
0: been some pretty oh. bad ones. Yeah, Chandi, yeah, do you yeah. know about the the like any of these?
1: I, I just know about the triangle. But what, what was the other one you said?
2: Triangle shirtwaist. I know. Oh, well, it was, there was a Coconut Grove that. nightclub. Yeah. Uh,
1: coconut they, isn't that miami
2: uh, i think it was in boston coconut. it was a nightclub and um the doors all opened inward and so when the crowd got up they, they squashed each other because they're,
0: they're trying to push to get out right. and right. so the doors, not the doors all open outwards
2: now and
0: unless you have a, under a certain capacity which i still disagree with but <laughs> <laughs> i don't understand it but that's Somehow it's still allowed because uh, my my initial yeah. thing is to push out. And then when I'm in like a tiny restaurant, I'm like, oh, it opens in. That's still odd to me. Yes,
2: but. it is. And, you know, you had um, Beverly Hills Supper Club fire in uh, the Cincinnati area.
0: I don't even uh, think I heard about that one.
2: You had a station nightclub that not too yeah, long ago.
0: That was bad. That was really yeah. bad. Listening to the audio of that one is just really... Disturbing.
2: Yeah. And then there's a Grenfell Towers in, in the UK that um killed about 70 people. I mean, who thought it was a good idea to put a flammable cladding on the outside of a brick building? You
0: know? yeah, yeah, that's um where in the yeah. UK was that?
2: It was in London.
0: Yeah, that's why we have um material testing and, and using certain materials for exteriors and and I mean even in the interior. Yeah. And just like the wall ratings are or door ratings, everything
2: hmm. DuPont Plaza was a, uh, an important fire. And there's been quite a few, yeah. and, you know, every time something like that happens, people fix the standards.
0: It's a shame that it just takes a, you know, a tragedy or disaster to happen for things to get better. But I guess that's the only way you really learn.
2: Well, you can't get people to spend money unless you make them. You know, it's just sometimes you, you got to have you got to have laws to say, look, you have to spend this money. I don't care if you don't yeah. want to put in a sprinkler system. You're going to put in a sprinkler system or you're not going to get a permit to build a place. Been to, you know, so many commercial fire losses where they didn't put in a sprinkler system. They lose 10 or 20 million bucks. And I say, how do you feel about saving that hundred thousand bucks on a sprinkler system now? I mean, yeah, it's important. It, it really is. Well, oh.
0: thank you for. Oh, thank you. Yeah.
2: Sure. Thanks. This is great.
1: We'd like to thank John Lantini for providing his expertise and insight into fire science investigations, the future of fire science, and the importance of the accuracy of this field. Check out
0: John's website, firescientist.com. And if you're so inclined, check out John's book, Science Protocols for Fire Investigation. It's available on Amazon and firebooks.com. Follow us on Twitter and on Instagram. Don't forget, you can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, Google... We are everywhere. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Bound by the Cloak. We'll see you next time.